Good to worship with you this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, let's go to the book of Amos. Amos is where we're going to be, and the verse that's going to be the guide verse for us today, which is also uh, the title of the sermon, is in Amos chapter 6 and verse 1. So if you'd like, go to Amos chapter 6 and verse 1. If you do not have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with us in a paper Bible, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks there in front of you. And if you don't know where to find things in Amos, you are uh, find things in the Bible and you don't know where to find Amos, you are not alone. It's a tricky one to find, little book, kind of tucked away. It's going to be on page 768 of the Bibles that are there in the chair racks in front of you. I want to start this morning by asking you a question. And I would like you, if you would humor me, to write down your answer to this question. And don't write it down yet, but I want to start by just asking this question. What kind of relationship do you have with money? Mm -hmm. We're going to get right into it today. What is your relationship with money? And if you would humor me, think about how you might describe your relationship with money with one word. You've got a pen, if you're using your phone or something, I want you to think about if you might sum up your relationship with money with just one word and write that down somewhere. You don't have to think too hard about it. But just what, what's one word that immediately comes to mind when you think about your relationship to money? That word might be anxiety. That word might be comfort. That word might be pursuit. That word might be disdain. I'm just throwing suggestions out. But if you could write that word down, somehow, remember it, because I want to come back to that word at the end of the message today. Last week, we began our series in the Old Testament book of Amos. Most of us have never heard a series through the book of Amos. Many of us have never even read of the book of Amos. Some of us are just now finding out today that there is a book of Amos, so welcome. We started a series in the book of Amos together, and Amos had a message for the people of God. And the way Amos starts, if you were, if you were with us last week, is in a way that God's people would have loved because he has a, a pronouncement of judgment on nation after nation after nation after nation who are the enemies of God's people. And so God's people probably would have been thinking, yes, 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 they deserve it, they deserve it, they deserve it. And then we get, we get closer and closer to when Amos says, and also God has a word of judgment towards you. Amos is a difficult book to read because the book of Amos is full of judgment. There is judgment on every page. There is judgment in every chapter. 
But there's a place in Amos where God gives the prophet Amos the vision of a plumb line. And I actually brought something like this from my extensive tool collection. This is definitely my tool that I use uh, and not Bob Barker's. But this is, a, this is called a plumb bob. I don't know why that changed somewhere along the way. Uh, but this is, this is a plumb line. This is the, this is the image of what, we're, what you're supposed to have. As God held this up to the people to see whether they measured up, to see whether they, were, whether they were crooked or whether they were straight. And what Amos's job was to do was to hold up this line to God's people and show that they were living outside of God's values, outside of God's law, outside of God's word. They were not living in line with his standards. And there were three main areas in which God's people did not measure up as, as Amos held this plumb line up to them. And we can see this in the opening word of judgment to the northern kingdom of Israel. You can either flip back to Amos chapter 2 or you can read it on the screen behind me. But I want you to be on the lookout for these three main areas. They're kind of all interlocking with each other. But as we read this together, see if you can pick out these three main areas of judgment that God spoke to his people. Amos chapter 2, verse 6, the, the Bible says this, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, remember we saw last week that speaking of the totality of God's judgment of their guilt, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Now, there are a lot of things that we could sort out in there, and we're not going to take the time to sort all the intricacies of those verses out. But you probably noticed just on your first time reading through, or maybe you read it through this past week just to familiarize with yourself with the book, but maybe you saw three main categories of sin that are going to show up as a repeated pattern throughout the book. Those three main categories which are interconnected are their materialism, their injustice, and their false worship. Their materialism, their injustice, and their false worship. Notice their desire for silver speaks of their materialism. Their willingness to sell the righteous, to take advantage of the righteous, to acquire wealth, speaks of their injustice. And of course, the reference there to the altar and God's holy name being profaned speaks to their false worship. So right in the very first indictment against God's people, those three categories are laid out in a way that are going to show up again, again and again and again throughout 
the book. And so we're going to spend this week, the following week, and then the week after speaking about these three categories. And so as you know already this morning, we're going to talk about their materialism, their relationship to prosperity. And I'd like us to consider this truth together this morning. God's people must have a healthy relationship with prosperity. God's people must have a healthy relationship with prosperity. We're going to spend some time talking about this, but before we do, there are indicators of their prosperity throughout the book that I just want to highlight a few of them for you. I had you turn to Amos chapter 6 and verse 1 to start us off. Our sermon title is taken from this verse. And Amos chapter 6 and verse 1 says this, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. So we see here Amos pronouncing a word of woe, pronouncing a word of trouble, pronouncing a word of distress on those who are dwelling at ease in the land. The picture that we get of the experience of God's people as we work through this book is one of prosperity, one of ease, one of safety, one of security. In Amos chapter 3 and verse 15, we see that they have winter houses and summer houses, and those houses are decorated with ivory. Amos chapter 4 and verse 1 has this rather humorous picture of the wives constantly calling for their husbands to bring them another round of drinks. There are marks of their material prosperity and ease everywhere. But the question that you might immediately be asking is, is that a bad thing? Because I'd kind of like a life of ease. (laughs) I don't mind living in safety and security. And of course, none of those things are wrong in and of themselves. It is not in and of itself wrong to enjoy ease or prosperity or security. And in fact... As this book has all these things to say about judgment, in the very last chapter of the book, there is a picture of restoration after judgment that includes uh, uh, imagery of, of prosperity. It says in when God restores the fortunes of his people uh, at the, in the last chapter that the mountains are going to drip with sweet wine and the hills flow with it. So there's nothing necessarily wrong with prosperity. Prosperity is, in many places in the Scriptures, can be a sign of God's blessing. Security is one of God's good gifts to us. So what then is the problem here? The pro- there are three problems in their pursuit of prosperity here in Amos that I want to highlight to you. Problem number one, their pursuit of prosperity came at the expense 
of the poor. Their pursuit of prosperity came at the expense of the poor. You already saw that in the verses that I read, but let me share another one with you in Amos chapter 5 and verse 11. The Bible says, Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. Now, I think Amos would be quick to say that there would be, there's no problem with dwelling in houses of hewn stone or planting pleasant vineyards. Those things can be great blessings. A, a house of hewn stone would have been a house that had been built out of the best of materials. It would have been a sign of wealth and prosperity. The problem was not in their having houses that looked like this or that were made this way. The problem, obviously, is that their prosperity was gained at the expense of others. Their wealth came built on the backs of the poor. You might think of the modern-day slumlord who charges exorbitant rents over people that they simply have to pay with, but while providing substandard housing for them and refusing to fix things, doing that because simply he can. He is in a position where he can take advantage of them and they are in a position that they could be taken advantage of. So there is no problem necessarily with prosperity in and of itself. The problem comes when it requires harming others, particularly the poor, to acquire it. There was a second problem in their pursuit of prosperity. In the second place, we see that their pursuit of prosperity came at the expense of the common good. Their pursuit of prosperity came at the expense of the common good. Look or listen to Amos chapter 6 and verse 4. Amos says, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. That really paints a picture for us about their full speed ahead pursuit of pleasure. These people are looking for pleasure down every avenue that they can find it. And there is a, a picture painted here for us of wealthy people who are pursuing only pleasure. They lie on beds of ivory, our text tells us. They're not going to lay on some futon. Okay, they've got, they, they are living in, in the midst of finery. 
And the picture of, is of them sitting around with not much to do. And because they don't have much to do, they decide that they're going to become songwriters, imagining themselves as, 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 as other Davids, inventing musical instruments for themselves and passing the time with their songs. And while they lay on these couches eating and, and, and coming up with new instruments and singing idle songs, they are drinking wine, it says, by the bowlful. And they anoint themselves with the finest oil. You can spray on a bit of cologne or perfume without thinking anything of it. You can get a really expensive kind, or you can get the kind they have at Walmart. But you can get it. But the picture here is of of people who have the wealth to anoint themselves with something that lots of others couldn't have. Again, none of those things are necessarily wrong in and of themselves. But it says that they do all these things, they eat and they drink and they sing and they anoint themselves with the finest of oils and yet at the end of verse 6, but they are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. One of the things that you'll notice as you read the Old Testament is that uh, oftentimes the nation is described using a word of one of its founders. So it will be referred to as Israel. It will be referred to as Jacob. And, it, and it, as, as it is here, referred to as Joseph. And the image that we are supposed to have in our minds, I think, as we read a text like this, is people who are wholeheartedly pursuing their own pleasure at the expense of everyone else. Might that sound familiar? Might we not be a nation of people who are clawing each other, with each other to make sure that at least I get mine? without much thought for the common good. Their individual pursuit of prosperity and pleasure was literally destroying their nation. God is sending prophets to them to tell them that in just a few short years, they are going to be taken captive. They are going to be led into exile. They are going to be pushed out of the land that God had brought them into. There was a third problem with their prosperity. And it's this. Their pursuit of prosperity became their main priority. It became their main priority. Look or listen at Amos chapter 8, verses 4 to 6. Here, Amos says, Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff, of the wheat. Now that's a, a mouthful. 
An ephah is a unit of measurement, kind of like the pound. The shekel is a unit of currency, kind of like the dollar. We'll talk a little bit more about this next week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it now. But it speaks about the un, their, their unjust practices in buying and selling. Okay, that's, that's kind of the headline. But not only are their practices in the marketplace unjust, but notice what's driving it all. What's driving it is their need for commerce. Their pursuit of prosperity has become their main priority. There are people who are saying, when is the new moon going to be over that we may sell grain? When can the Sabbath be over that we may offer wheat for sale? What they're basically saying is, when are these religious festivals and observances finally going to be over so that we can get back to doing what we want to do? Why can't Chick-fil-A be open on Sunday? And so you can almost you can almost see them putting up with the religious observances and putting up with the religious practices and counting down the minutes to when God's programmed prescribed day of rest for them and focus on him can be over so that they can get back to the pursuit of of Making money. We call it hustle culture in our day. How can I get a passive income stream going so that I could be making money while I'm at church even? Now, I've tried, as I've talked about this, to be very clear, and I'll say it again. The, pro- the problem was not with prosperity in and of itself. The problem was not with safety in and of itself. The problem is not with security or even ease in and of themselves. All of those things can be good gifts from God to be received from His hand for our good and His glory. Hear that. The problem is not wealth. The problem is our relationship to it. We can have prosperity, but prosperity shouldn't have us. It should not have our heart. And yet the Bible warns us that wealth is kind of like a boa constrictor that just starts winding its way slowly around our hearts. And when it has our hearts fully in its grip, it begins to squeeze. And it actually squeezes the life out of us. This is something that the New Testament makes very clear. It'll be on the screen behind me, but if you'd like, you can go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let's read these words slowly and carefully together. 
let's remember, almost everyone, the tendency of almost everyone in this room is probably going to think of people as wealthy as somebody who has more than me. But every one of you are wealthy. Every single one of you, almost without exception, has some measure of disposable income. So the Bible is not talking to people who live in an address that you don't live at. The Bible's talking to you. The Bible's talking to me. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. That's a hopeful statement, isn't it? But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. These verses are often misquoted to say that money is the root of all evil. But you notice, and you may have noticed before, that that is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money in its proper place can be a sign of blessing and an instrument of good. The problem is not money, but our love of it. How many people here would just be honest and say, I would love to take a crack at being rich? Okay, there's a few of you, a bunch of liars. Because I'd be the one, right, that could handle it. I see story after story after story of person who couldn't handle it, but God, put me in, coach, because I think I could do it. Young people, rising up through high school, going into college, how many of you have as, as something lodged in your heart, the hope that I will move into something that helps me make a ton of money. The pursuit of wealth is so much woven into our American culture that it is a respectable sin. There are certain things that you could never say you want desperately. But that is one thing you could probably declare openly and be patted on the back for. 
and look at what the Bible says. The Bible says those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The Bible doesn't say that that happens to those, to those who are rich. It says it happens to people who desire it. And I'm willing to bet that there are a bunch of us here who desire very much to be rich. And I know that about your hearts, as I know mine. And I know what it's like to be driving down the road and to see somebody that has some house or car or something that I don't have and start thinking about what I could do to get it and the moves that I could make. And I'm terrible at making moves, so all of that is a complete pipe dream. But I know what it's like to just fantasize about what, you know, what if I did walk into 7-Eleven and play the lottery? What if I did win and I could do so much for the church? I could do so much for the church. But the warning is here for us in black and white. So many people have shown us that they have had that dogged desire to be rich. They have pursued it wholeheartedly. And in the pursuit of that, they have indeed fallen into a temptation, fallen into a snare, fallen into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And that has happened not only to themselves and to their own hearts, but it has destroyed people around them. Do we think we're better? Ultimately, it says here, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The craving for wealth leads us away from Jesus. So, what's the antidote? How can we have a healthy relationship with prosperity? And this is an important question for all of us to answer because as Americans, we all have an established relationship with prosperity. It's not whether you're going to have the relationship or not. You're in it. It's will it be healthy? Will it be godly? And I'd like to propose that we can have a healthy relationship with prosperity by pursuing two greater investment opportunities. Two greater investment opportunities. Remember what it says at the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6? But godliness with contentment is great gain. 
What are gains? That's profit. That's a return on investment. And there are two great investment opportunities in front of us that are the antidote to our unhealthy relationship with prosperity. That first investment opportunity is this. Invest in contentment more than prosperity. Invest in contentment more than prosperity. Pursue contentment the way you pursue wealth. How much time do you and I have invested in where we're going to put our money or how we're going to spend our money or how we're going to grow our money or however we're going to do whatever with the things that we have been given? Now, let me just say, I've tried to, tried to keep saying this. God's given you stuff to steward. It's not bad to have stuff as long as you recognize that you're not an owner of your stuff. You're a steward of your stuff. And if you have stuff, you have a responsibility to invest that stuff. So I'm going back and forth here to make sure that we don't overreact on things. But I'm willing to lay good money down on the fact that we spend a lot more time thinking about how to get more than how to figure out to be happy with what we have. I bet we spend a lot more time thinking about more than developing a contentment. This is enough. There are great gains to be had in contentment. It takes work over time to be content with what you have. Our passage here in 1 Timothy tells us that contentment revol- re- uh, revolves around being happy with our food and our clothing. Basically, it's referring to the basic necessities. If we have our basic necessities, then we have enough. If we are given more, if we have a God-given talent for generating more, then we give thanks for it. We manage it well. But we are satisfied with what we have. CBC. Are we satisfied with what we have? I'm not. I've got a whole list of things that I'd like to add. But if I was never able to acquire another thing and God met my needs, is that enough? If God forbid he asked me to take my standard of living backwards, is that okay? I mean, that's something that we honestly can't imagine. God would never give us this and then ask us to go back to this, would he? That wouldn't be fair. Why? He never promised us all this stuff. 
He promised to meet our needs. And so one of the things that we ought to do as followers of Jesus is remember that that we didn't bring anything into this world and we're not going to take anything out of it. We are going to leave the way we came. And that sort of way of thinking is going to ground our perspective and it's going to, over time, turn us into people who could have more or who could have less, but whatever state we find ourselves in, we are content because our Father is caring for us. Invest in contentment. The second opportunity for investment is right there in front of us. We are to invest in godliness more than prosperity. We're to invest in godliness more than prosperity. Because money has such a power to cultivate in me a love for it, I think it's okay for us to have a healthy fear of it. Seeing it as a blessing, but having a healthy fear of it the way you'd have a healthy fear of something that's high voltage. High voltage can be used for good. It can also take your life from you. And that's what money can do. You and I will be better able to handle prosperity if our heart's pursuit is not prosperity itself, but godliness. And that was the problem with the people in Amos' day. They had fallen in love with wealth. They had fallen in love with pleasure. They had fallen in love with security. They had fallen in love with ease. And because they had fallen in love with all of those things, they had, in essence, turned their back on God, who had sent a prophet, who was a shepherd, named Amos, to hold up a plumb line and say, you're crooked. Jesus gave us a warning about this. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. He said, no one can serve two masters. For he will, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. But man, we can try, can't we? I mean, if there is anything... That might be a stain on us as American Christians. It is the repeated trying to serve God and money. And fellow Christians, I say that as as with you in it. And I think what the Lord wants to say to us this morning is that some sort of hold... Prosperity has over us needs to be broken. That we need to people we need to be people who can appreciate and enjoy it without serving it, without making it our God. Jesus died to free us from slavery to sin. 
And one of the things Jesus died, one of the slaveries that Jesus died to save us from is the love and serving of money. So maybe there's somebody here today who has not really ever followed Jesus because it would require a change in your relationship to wealth. Reminds me of a story, doesn't it? Remind you? The rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, I've, I've done all the stuff. And Jesus says, great job. Sell everything you have, give it away, and follow me. And we've gotten so used to giving the, the, the disclaimer that that's not prescriptive, that you don't have to sell all you have and give it away to follow him, that it's almost like, well, it would be ludicrous to do that, but he did. And no, Jesus isn't calling us to sell all we have necessarily and sell it all to give it away, but he might be. And wealth might be the obstacle that stands between you and truly following Jesus. Because the rich young ruler who did everything else right went away sorrowful because Jesus had touched on the one thing his heart wouldn't give up. If that's you this morning, don't gain the world and forfeit your soul. It's a bad trade. In fact, if that's you, we would invite you, if you've never followed Jesus, to repent of your sins, including materialism, and turn in faith to Jesus where you are sitting right now. He can break your bondage to prosperity through his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. But how should we then respond as God's people? How should we as God's people respond? Psalm 139, there's a, a statement in Psalm 139 that says, Search me, O God, and know my heart, and see if there be any grievous way in me. I want to revisit something that I said last week. I said one of the dangers that I want to try to put in front of you as we study the book of Amos together is that we might think that because we're people who want to hear the word of God preached, we will assume that we must also be obeying it. When God might want to do some radical, under-the-hood work in our lives. And yet we hear the word over and over and over again, and we're just unchanged by it. So how do we respond? Each one of us saying, search me, O God. Know my heart. Help me know my heart. Show me if there is any way in here, if there's any love, if there is anything wrapped around my heart that is grievous to you because I desire godliness and I desire holiness and the things that are grievous to you are grievous to me. Even the things that are respectable in my neighborhood and in commu my community and even my church, even if they're respectable there, if they grieve you, they grieve me. So what word did you write down at the beginning? 
Hold that word up. Not to me. <laughs> Public confession time. Write it bigger so I can see it. What was your word? What does it say about your relationship to prosperity? And now that we've brought Jesus into the equation, what might the Spirit be saying to you? How might the Spirit of God, who dwells within you, be prompting your heart, through your communion with Him, through your relationship with Him, through the preaching of the Word, through you seeing that the things that I have said this morning, I think, come from Scripture, I'm not trying to apply the Word to you in overly prescriptive ways. I don't need to be the Spirit. You have Him. What is the Spirit saying to you? How might you invest in godliness? How might I invest in contentment? Let's make Jesus our master. And let's make God's blessings something that serve us rather than something that we serve. Friends, we can't do this without him. We desperately need him to help us. So let's pray right now that Jesus would help us. Lord, Search me and know my heart. Lord, you have shown me that I am not generous. That I have what I have. And I'm always afraid to let go of it. Change my heart. Spirit of God, move among your people. Help us to bow down to you and to you only. Change our relationship to prosperity. We thank you for the good gifts that you've given us. We thank you for the ways many, many faithful saints here have invested the things that you've given for the good of others. But Lord, help us not to see the word. Help us not to look at it as if in a mirror and then walk away unchanged. Do radical work in our hearts. Give us great gains in godliness. Amen.